Well, this morning's uh, title is called The Reason for Godly Elders. It's based, uh, we continue our series through Titus. Uh, we're on Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. I'd like to read for us the scriptures for us this morning from Titus 1, 10 through 16. It's a continuation of chapter 1 where Paul has told Titus to make sure that he sets things in order and appoint in every church, in every city, elders. Or then, and, and so these... Uh, Verse 10 to 16 continue on explaining why, the reason for why uh, godly elders are needed in every church. Verse 10 through 16, we read this. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that we can come to Your Word and open it up this morning. And as Your Word is expounded and taught from this pulpit, we pray once again that Your Spirit would take Your Word, that You would teach Your people, Lord, and that You would also convict us and challenge us. Father, cause us to look at this word and not, and not just say, well, that's what other people need. But Father, cause us to see and hear the warnings that we need to see, that we need to observe. Father, may you do a work in our hearts. Continue to challenge us to grow as a church, to continue to hold fast to the word of life, the faithful word of Christ. Lord, help us to, as a church to... Uh, to <clears throat> to continually not stray from the truth, but to hold to sound doctrine that leads to godliness in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would build up your church now through the preaching of your word. And Lord, may your spirit take your word and speak to each one here exactly that which they need to hear, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, our passage today, verses 10 through 16, if you ever kind of look in the commentaries, sometimes it's, in many of our Bibles, it's just a continuation of verses 9 through 5, 9 through, uh, 5 through 9. When you look at the commentaries, they often say something like, this is about false teachers. This is about uh, the characteristics of false teachers. These are the, the call to reprove false teachers, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, when we hear that term false teachers, and that's what this passage is about, it's about false teachers. It's about why the elders need it, because there are false teachers in the world. Now, when you and I think about false teachers, we tend to think about, right? When I think, say, false teachers, you know, what comes to your mind? Okay, don't, you know, don't need to shout it out. <laughs> Some of you are good. <laughs> you know, we, we think of the guys on TV, right? Immediately, you say, oh, okay, you know, Ken Hagen, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen. And I'm sorry, you, you know, you like some of those people, but, you know, those are uh, common, some of the uh, common day false, uh, false uh, preachers, false teachers, prosperity gospel preachers. Now, we think of them, we, we sometimes think of those, the, those that teach clear heresy, like salvation by works. You know, we think of some of the cults, like, oh, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Those are false teachers. They're Christian in name, but they add works to our salvation. We think false teachers like that. We also think of false teachers as those who may deny some of the essential doctrines, the fundamentals of our faith, such as the miracles or the, the deity of Christ. We deny his virgin birth. We deny his miracles. We deny that he's the son of God and such things. And you say, oh, those are obviously false teachers. But those are false teachers, at least from our standpoint, that are out there, right? They're on TV. They're, they're not necessarily in here. And, that's, and sometimes I think when we use that term false teachers, I, I feel like we kind of let our guard down. We let our guard down because when we think of false teachers, we think of them as outside of the church. They're outside, they're far away. Uh, they're on the television. They can't harm us. They're, we don't let them in our doors. And so there's a minimal perceived threat 
to the health of a local church. We seldom think of false teachers as being within the local church. We seldom think of false teachers as being among our midst. We seldom think of them as people we know. Yet that's exactly what the churches on Crete were finding themselves in. They were in a situation where there were false teachers in their midst, literally in their churches. And they were causing all sorts of havoc. These were professing, uh, professing believers. These were people who said, yeah, I follow Christ, but you also got to do this, but you also have to do this. They're, the problem with them is that though they were professing believers, they held and taught false doctrine, doctrine that corrupted the gospel of Christ. And Paul, you know, <clears throat> when you think about the warnings that Paul gave to the elders in, in the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he warned them about wolves that would come from out without. We, we're always mindful of the wolves that come from without. They kind of, they look like wolves. They just, they just don't fit. But he also warned them in Acts 20 verse 30, he said, from among your own selves, Men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And that's a sobering warning. And it's sobering in the sense that we tend to ignore, we don't think that it's going to be one of us. But that's what Paul said to the Ephesian elders. Jesus, even in his 12, the select 12, one of them was a false disciple. See, the most dangerous false teachers to the church are not the ones that we're aware of outside of the church. They're not the ones on TV. They're not the cults. They are the ones that we are unaware of that are inside the church. Now, I want to be sure to add that hopefully you're not going to you know, go to Sunday school class next week and look at your teachers and like, hmm, is he a false teacher? Is PH, does PH have a list of people in the church? He's like, yeah, these are the false teachers. I'm, is he one of them or is she one of them? You know, I, I don't have that kind of list, okay? But I want us to look at this text, not thinking of false teachers as out there, but like the people in the churches in Crete, to look at and be be ready for the very likely possibility that there are false teachers in the midst here from our own selves. Just as Paul warned the church in Ephesus. It is for this very reason, false teachers within the church that God gives shepherds, elders to the church of Jesus Christ to watch over the flock, to protect the flock. And that's what Paul's been talking about in chapter one. Today's passage teaches us that the threat of ungodly false teachers necessitates godly elders in the church, in every church. In Titus chapter one, verse five through nine, the apostle Paul had exhorted Titus to appoint elders in every church on the island of Crete. Elders are those, and even in this church, we have a group of elders, a group of men who are gifted teachers, godly men. They're godly men who are above reproach in their family life, in their church life. They're men who are gifted, gifted and able to teach, able to, to, uh, to exhort in sound doctrine as well as to refute those who contradict. But in verses 10 to 16 then, Paul explains one particular reason why the church needs such godly and gifted men. Why do we need this group of godly men? Why can't we just have our leadership be everybody that's a member of the church just gets one vote and we just decide every matter by just voting on everything? Why do we need a group of men and call them elders, shepherds? Why do they, must they be godly? Why must they be gifted? Because of the presence of ungodly and ungifted men, otherwise known as false teachers. Now, I wanna, when we use the term false teachers, we tend to use it in term referring to the, thing, the content of their teaching, that they're teaching falsehoods. But I want to call the attention, particularly in the light of uh, a light of the book of Titus, where it's not just what they teach, but it's the result of their teaching. That sound doctrine is going to lead to godliness, and false doctrines, unsound doctrine, leads to ungodliness. It's going to be one or the other. If you don't teach sound doctrine, it's going to lead to a life of ungodliness. But when you teach sound doctrine, 
doctrine that is according to the, to the teachings of Christ, it will inevitably produce godliness and good works in the life of those who hear. And so I want to call these teachers, I'm going to refer to them, I'm going to use the term interchangeably, false teachers, but I'm also going to call them ungodly teachers because you should know them eventually by their deeds. Well, as an outline for us, simple outline, three points uh, for us. Three instructions about ungodly teachers that Paul gives that explain why godly elders are needed in every church. Why do we need elders? But I, even as I think of this, and I hope that you'll see and appreciate why we need elders, but that you also take uh, a look at these qualities of it, these false and ungodly teachers that we want to make sure that we ourselves, and I, as I was going through this, I said, I want to make sure that I myself and hopefully you, as you're, if you're a teacher in, in this church, that you're not one who would fall into the trap of being a false teacher, an ungodly teacher. So let's take a look then. Point number one. Paul's first instruction describes the, the characteristics of these ungodly teachers. And their characteristic is primarily defined by the word rebellion. Ungodly teachers are in rebellion. We see the rebellion of ungodly teachers in verses 10 through 11. Verse 10, notice there. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Verse 10 begins, uh, you notice, with the explanatory uh, conjunction, for. When the word that for, that tells us that it's a continuation of what we've seen. Why do we need godly elders? Why do we need gifted elders? Well, here's the reason. Because there are many rebellious men. There are many rebellious men in the church. Is any rebellious men here? honest man right here. Okay, exactly. You know, if we're all honest with ourselves, we will recognize that we're all, to some extent, rebellious men and women. You see, because the problem is our sin and our fallen nature, because of the curse of sin, all of us are born with a sinful heart, a sinful heart that in its, in its most basic in its most basic sense, is in rebellion or in, in subordination, some of your translations have, to authority. Then the first authority that we're in rebellion and in subordination to is God. We rebelled against God. In our fallenness, we have a tendency to rebel. It's no mistake that this word rebellious is used early, was used earlier in verse 6. But when use of the elders' children, right? Elders' children are to be faithful, not accused of dissipation and rebellion, insubordination. They aren't supposed to be rebellious and insubordinate. And, and the thing is, that's children. No one has to teach my children to be rebellious. Are you teaching my children to be rebellious, nursery workers, mustard seed teachers? No, you're not, right? I don't think so. No one has a teacher to say no to me or no to my wife. It's in her nature to want to do things herself. It's in her nature as a rebel to say, uh, I think I know better for my life. I think I know better than my mom and dad. And so I'm going to rebel against, I'm going to say, no, I don't want to do that right now. That's rebellion. That's rebellion. As we grow in life, rebellion manifests in different ways. As students rebel against teachers, as adults, we rebel against authorities like our bosses, our, our government leaders, and even our church leaders. But it doesn't mean, though, this rebellion doesn't mean that we are always actively in clear-cut, explicit rebellion. We're not blatantly protesting or disobeying authority. We're not walking around with the words on our head, not my parents. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not my parents. Our rebellion is much more subtle. We're clever as we go older, aren't we? We hide our rebellion. We do, it's in our heart. I mean, or maybe it's just me. I'm the only one who hides my rebellion. Okay. Because it, it, we end up, we tend to think that we know better than our authorities. We tend, and uh, you know, sometimes as, when you're an authority, you kind of appreciate, <laughs> you appreciate other authorities because you realize, you know, there's a, it's a heavy weight of responsibility. And then there's so much, there's much knowledge that an, the average person may not be aware of. The thing is, you're trying to make the best decision for, at that moment. And a lot of people are always criticizing authority. They're always saying, well, we know better than that guy. We know better than that, that president, that governor, that mayor, that, you know, that congressman, congresswoman. We know better than all. I know better than that, uh, <clears throat> that mayor. And I was, we should do things my way. And that's the heart of rebellion, really. Now, as for the specific rebellion of these teachers, though, in Crete, it was not against church leaders. There were none at that time. And that's why Titus has to appoint some elders. 
Rather, their rebellion was against the authority of Paul and his instruction from the word of God. And that means ultimately, when it's rebellion against the word of God, it's a rebellion against God. At the heart of every false, ungodly teacher is rebellion. It's a rebellion against God. It's a rebellion that says, no, I don't think you know better and I'm going to eat this fruit because I think I know better. Genesis 3. Paul also describes these words, this, this rebellion of these ungodly teachers and he describes them as empty talkers and deceivers. The words are empty, he says. They're empty in content. There's no substance to it. There's no truth in it. It's, they're... <clears throat> They are basically, you know, they, they could talk for a whole hour, 45 minutes, and just like, you know, I don't know what he was talking about. It just seemed like he was just speaking flowery words. There was no substance, no meat to it, no truth. Instead, they speak lies. They're deceivers. They speak lies. And lies are basically those things which are contrary to the word of God. Or they do not come from the word of God. It's false teaching that's aimed at deceiving those who hear or were were what these ungodly false teachers were doing. And the kicker is, Paul's warning to Titus this, is that there are many rebellious men. There are many rebels like this on the Isle of Crete. It's not just one, right? Boy, if there was one false teacher in this church, uh, I'd be losing sleep. There were a few I'm like, oh, man, we better get, we got to call them elders meeting ASAP right away. We've got to put that down. Or not even just some. But Paul says there are, there are many rebels, rebellious teachers, false teachers in your midst. Now, Paul doesn't add, it doesn't speak of the exact nature of their false doctrine that was taught here by these false teachers. But the source of these ungodly teachers gives us a clue. He adds in the end of verse 10 that these are false teachers that are especially those, or it could be translated, namely, those of the circumcision. Primarily, that means these are primarily Jewish background believers. They were professing Christians. They had been, they had, were from a Jewish background. They had been converts from Judaism. They may have, they, it was likely that they grew up on Crete. They were Hellenistic in the sense, a Hellenistic culture, but they were Jewish uh, in their and their ethnicity, and they grew up, and they, but yet on Crete, they, maybe they went to Jerusalem during Acts, in the day of Pentecost, like the men, that was mentioned in Acts 2, and some of them came to know Christ. They brought it back to Crete. They started telling people about Jesus the Messiah, and people got saved. And so uh, we, saw, we see in verse 10 here the, the traits of these ungodly teachers. Verse 11 continues on to describe the characteristic of these ungodly teachers and the threat of them, that they are a dangerous threat to have ungodly teachers. Paul writes, these are those who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Paul says that these false teachers need to be silenced. The word is unique in the New Testament, it's not only here, and it means to muzzle or gag the mouth. And Paul's not concerned about, you know, uh, First Amendment rights here, okay? He's saying, I'm more concerned about the truth of God, that the truth of God that must be protected. The churches of Christ must be protected. The, <clears throat> these, these false teachers are upsetting whole families. This word upset, is, is, it's, this is a serious matter. It actually means to overturn. It's used literally of this in John chapter 2, verse 15. When Jesus walked in the temple and he saw the money changers basically just running business in the temple, in the house of God, just selling stuff. And then what happens? What does Jesus do? He says, mm, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. You know, I suggest, oh, you know, hey, let's talk about this. What did Jesus do? He made a quarter whips and he just, you know, clean house. He overturned the tables and he was like, whoa, Jesus was mad. He was zealous for his church and he overturned the tables, the money of the table. So that's the same word that's used here. Now figuratively used is that these falsies, whatever they were teaching, were basically overturning whole families. Now families is one way we translate it. This word could also mean household. A whole household, a whole, not just the immediate family, but the people in the household, the slaves, the different members. And the key is this. 
or the, the, critic, the interest is that in those days, where did churches meet? In beautiful buildings like this? No. They met in homes. And so when Paul says they were upsetting whole families, it is very likely that he's referring to the fact that these teachers, because of their false doctrine, were actually overturning whole churches where these, where in these homes where they met. And that's the danger of false doctrine. You know, somebody just, you know, sometimes some people, we, there are some doctrines that are not a danger. They're not, a, they don't affect the, the gospel perhaps. But there are some doctrines that, that get to, to the heart of the gospel. They get to the heart of the nature of who God is, who Jesus is. They, if you hold something contrary, it just, it destroys the gospel. Those kind of doctrines upset a whole church. Now, there can be some, you know, inconsequential doctrines that cause that because of the sinfulness of a church can divide a church and those are serious too but when teachers are with their false doctrines are upsetting whole churches whole families then a response needs to be done these 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 teachers must be silenced they were teaching things that they should not teach and so, and what's more, they were doing it for sordid gain. They were, they were doing it for their selfish greed and gain. They saw the church as an opportunity to get rich. You know, sometimes people uh, criticize churches. Well, oh, that's some people, especially uh, pastors or missionaries like myself. Like, He's just out there to get rich. But wherever, wherever, okay, any organization, whether it's the government, whether it's business, whether it's a non-profit, nonprofit organization, and the church included, wherever there is money, wherever there is wealth and resources, it will always draw greedy men. And there's always the potential for some who come in to use that, the opportunity to make themselves rich. And that's what we're finding here, that these were false teachers who were coming in and seeking to make themselves rich by teaching things that they should not teach. These false teachers were rebelling against God, ransacking God's people for their own selfish gain. In every way, these false teachers were, were everything that elders were not. Instead of submitting to God, they rebelled against God. Instead of speaking truth to build up the church, they spoke empty words to deceive the church. Instead of strengthening the believers, they were upsetting whole families of believers. Instead of being stewards, they were being swindlers. Instead of teaching truth, they were teaching things they should not. And thus, we need, thus the churches need gifted elders to come in and silence these false teachers by refuting them, showing them how they are and where they contradict and to silence them before they can do more damage to Christ's church. And that's what, and this leads us to Paul's second instruction about ungodly teachers. And that is the reproof of ungodly teachers. We find in verse 12 to 14 that Paul tells Titus, who by implication is going to appoint elders in every church who then will fulfill this duty to reprove ungodly teachers. The command to reprove false teachers is found in verse 13. Paul there says in verse 13, for this reason, reprove them severely. Now, this sounds pretty strong, and it is a strong, it's a strong statement. Reprove them severely. This is in contrast to other places in scripture, such as Galatians chapter six, verse one, where when you see your brother sin, what do you do? You go reprove them with a spirit of gentleness, right? But here, because of the nature of these teachers and what the, the repercussions of what its effect upon the church, these kind of these kind of sinners, these false teachers, these ungodly teachers needed to be reproved severely, swiftly, strongly. This is more like 1 Timothy 5.20 of the strong rebuke of elders. There uh, Paul writes to young Timothy on the, who is pa uh, pastoring the church in Ephesus. He tells him those, that is those elders who continue in sin, that is those who are going to be leaders who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all. You don't even need to go to them privately. You need to rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. This is a strong, this is a strong reproof that is called for. Now, in order to justify the need of this, such a severe reproof, like, what did they do? Maybe they're innocent. Maybe they, maybe they just don't know, you know. Uh, they, they, didn't, they didn't mean to. 
overturn the whole church. They didn't mean to do it for sordid gain. Paul quotes one of the Cretans' own prophets in verse 12, and he makes his case for the severe reproof. He says, one of themselves, that's one of the, uh, one of the Cretans, people who live on Crete, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And that's a strong statement, right? Uh, anybody uncomfortable with this, this statement? Just imagine if it said, San Franciscans are always liars, evil beasts, and, and lazy gluttons. You'd say, hold up. Are you from San Francisco? Because if you ain't, you can't say that, right? But how many San Franciscans do like, oh, I can say that about San Francisco, right? Because I'm a San Franciscan. And that's the point here. Why Paul quotes from this Cretan prophet, because it's a Cretan who's saying it. You know, it's like that. You know, I'm, I'm Toysan in my culture. I'm Toysan. Well, actually, I'm not. I'm Toysan Filipino-American, okay? So that's, I have a blended culture, you know, because my parents, family's immigrated all the way. So I can speak ill of all my, my specific culture, you know? But you can't speak ill of my Toysan Filipino-American culture. You can't do it. Because unless, you, unless you're also from my culture, right? <laughs> Through Christ who strengthens you? <laughs> a false teacher. <laughs> Anyways, uh, now the fact is this. Now, that's what Paul quotes uh, from this prophet. Now, this prophet is a man named Epimenides. Epimenides. He was actually a guy who lived around 6th century BC. He was a poet. Actually, almost everybody there, there was a poet philosophers, they were called poet philosophers. Uh, but he was also known as to be a prophet. Now, not a prophet in the biblical sense. He was not a man who spoke on behalf of God. He was a secular one, esteemed by the Greeks. He made some prophecies here and there that, that the Greeks thought about. Now, his quote is harsh, and it is harsh. It's harsh even in their days, okay? But what he does is he paints with a broad brush the Cretan people. Now, Paul uses it because it's written by a Cretan. Now, Paul couldn't have said this himself. Well, by the authority as a Paul, he could have said it. But he's skillful enough as an orator. He says, no, I'm going to, he knows human behavior well enough. He's going to quote one of the own Cretans. And this is not the first time Paul's done this. Paul quote, quote, does quote other, uh, other secular people uh, if what they say is something that is biblical. But what is, what his quote of, from Epimenides use, is used to basically make this proof that these false teachers need to be reproved severely because, look, this is the kind of people that you're dealing with. First of all, he labels, uh, Epimenides labels his fellow countrymen, his fellow Cretans as liars. They're liars. Wow, that's pretty good. And he says, they're always liars, okay? Even though the word always is there, and those of you that study by law or logic, you probably would have came across this Epimed Epimenides paradox. And, but that's not the point here. The point is, is he's making an overstatement that, that's to characterize the, the Cretan people as a whole. Now, the Cretans had a notoriety for lying, they had a notoriety. In fact, their name, Crete, became a verb to Cretanize. Greek is a little different, but to Cretanize in the English came to actually mean to lie. So, hey, don't Cretanize. Don't lie is the same thing. It's like when even the verb, the city of Corinth. Remember, what were they known for? Sexual immorality. So to Corinthianize, even in the Greek, came known to be the one who practiced sexual immorality. These Cretans were known for Lying, they just found no problem with lying. It was just if it ends, if it justified the ends, uh, the 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 mean, uh, the ends, then it's great. It's no problem. And that's what it means. Well, anyways, he also labels them evil beasts. They are like wild, evil, wild animals. A little neat little thing about the island of Crete in this time was that they, the Crete didn't have any natural wild animals of their own. They didn't have wild animals on this island. It's a it's a real rocky land. And the implication is that the only wild animals were the people who lived there. These people on Crete, they were known for basically devouring one another. They, they, were, they, they found it honorable to be thieves and robbers. In fact, in first century BC, Crete was famous for housing robbers and pirates and brigands. It was an honorable thing to be. You can imagine, this was the culture. But lastly, uh, Epimenides labels fellow Cretans as lazy gluttons. They were people given to their appetites, always consuming but never doing any work. And such was the reputation of Crete. Such was the culture of many Christians who were saved out of this land and thus to some extent still reflected on occasion. And these believers on Crete came out of such a background. And so Paul quotes this, this statement to describe that this is the, these are the kind of people that you are going to be dealing with, Titus. 
even if they are believers. Paul affirms this statement in verse 13, and he then gives him the command in verse 13 for, for severe reproof. He affirms the statement of the Epimenides, this testimony is true. It's a true statement. And so he says, for this reason, because this statement is true about the character of these Cretans, reprove them severely so they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. You know, you gotta, people who think that lying is something that's honorable, you ever know meet people like that? Who lie, and when you cast them a lie, they're gonna give you another lie, and they keep lying and lying and lying to build on the, to hide, and they'll never admit that they're wrong. They'll just keep telling you lies, and you're like, dude, you're lying. There's honor among the Cretans to lie, and when there's honor to lie, then what's a little twisting of the truth? Thus, you need severe reproof. These false teachers needed to be reproved severely. And here we find the command to reprove them in verse 13, 14. This is the only command in the whole passage, to reprove. It means to correct someone from error, of their error with the aim of leading them to repentance. Jesus used this word in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Show him his fault is the word that we find here in Titus. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. It's not our task to go reprove unbelievers. Our task as a church, as Christians, is to reprove fellow believers. We don't, you know, unbelievers don't need our correction. They need the gospel. But fellow believers, at least professing believers, need Reproof, correction. The word severely is added here, and that adds the force of this. That it's to be done sharply, strongly, because of the, in, of the, of the, the danger that these uh, false teachers were creating in their midst. You know, when it comes to false teachers in our midst, you cannot wait and just kind of like, well, you know, hey, I'd like to simply talk to you. Let's, let's have a dialogue about it. If it affects the gospel... You have to address it immediately. You know, I'm gonna just pray for them that eventually they'll come see the truth. When they are in the church, you must, we must deal with it swiftly, strongly, severely. But however, notice, though we are to reprove severely, what is the goal of this reproof? Sometimes when we, when we come strong, we, we say, oh man, this guy's teaching false doctrine. I'm gonna come down strong on them. We, we, the tendency in our sinfulness is wanna, we wanna squash them. We wanna just eliminate false teachers from the church. We wanna chase them out because like, we think they're wolves. They could be wolves, but they could be. We should treat them first and foremost as fellow believers. We should seek to restore them and that's what Paul says. It's for the restoration of these believers, that they may be sound in the faith, that they would be spiritually healthy in their doctrine. Paul, in his pastoral epistles, constantly uses the word sound or healthy doctrine, healthy faith, healthy teaching. See, this is the theme of, of, uh, of Titus. True doctrine, sound doctrine, leads to real spiritual health and conduct, leads to godliness, and the false teachers, in this case, had turned away from the truth. They were teaching, instead of truth, myths and commandments of men. They were not teaching the commandments of God. They were teaching their own words, their own thoughts. They were th teaching things that were, that were not according to the scriptures. And though they were doing that, Paul held out hope that these false teachers could be restored to faith, to the faith, to the truth. In order to accomplish this, Titus would have to appoint godly elders in every church. I know many of you have probably had opportunities to do this, to come alongside. It's one of the worst things to have to do. It's one of the things I personally, as a, as a pastor, hate to do the most. When we have to come alongside and reprove or correct a fellow brother or sister in Christ. It's one of those things. I, it's just not me. I'm, I'm the guy who I like to be friends. Or I'm, the, you know, I'm a, too much of a man pleaser to, in that extent. 
We don't like to have to do it, but it's one of the most, it's one of the most, one of the important things that this church needs in our elders. Christ church needs the kind of elders who are gifted enough, first of all, to refute false teachers, but also courageous enough to reprove them severely when needed. And yet, loving enough, compassionate enough to seek their restoration and not their destruction. We need men who are gifted in the word, submitted to the Lord's work, and committed to love every single member. We essentially need faithful members. We don't want to say, oh, that, sick, that sheep is sick. Oh, let's just go shoot it. <laughs> oh, that, that, that sheep, oh, it's, it's kind of dirty. Oh, let's go, yeah, cut it off, you know. We need people who care for the sheep. And yes, they may be dirty, sick, gangrene growing on there. But we want to seek to restore them. We need faithful shepherds. That's what shepherds are. By the way, this week is the Shepherds Conference uh, out down at Grace Community Church. So many of our elders, as lay elders, as well as some of our leaders are going to be going. Some of you young men will also be going alongside to attend the Shepherds Conference. This is a very significant year. It's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Uh, the, of Martin Luther's uh, 95 Thesis. So it's, they're gonna be focused all upon the Reformation. If you can go, go. If you can listen to it online, listen to it online. It's, it should be live streamed. It should be, it's, they've got a fantastic lineup. Um, yeah, I know I'll be following along here <laughs> at home. But, and and um, I'm envious of you, those of you men that I get to go. But pray for those men. Not only for the shepherds who are going, but pray for those young men who I trust, they wanna be shepherds. I long to see every man in this church be a shepherd, a shepherd of their home, a shepherd of the family, of their children, of their wives, a shepherd of their ministries that would be faithful shepherds of this church. May God encourage, equip these young men, these men to be such shepherds here in this church because there are ungodly teachers out there and they need to be reproved. If they're not to act, they will rise up in here. Thirdly, and the final instruction about ungodly teachers that we find is the reality of ungodly teachers. The reality of ungodly teachers in verse 15 to 16. Paul writes here, first of all, um, he writes describing about the, the, the real nature of these ungodly teachers. He'll, uh, he'll in the description of them and what they teach are actually very similar to what Paul had addressed in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 to 3, and a few verses after as well. So this was actually a common problem in the churches in the day. It happened, it occurred in, in Ephesus and it occurred here in Crete as well. In verse 15 then, as he, uh, as he addresses the false doctrines that were being advocated, he addresses one particular doctrine that was being focused upon or the focus of the false teachers. And that focus was on the necessity of observing dietary kind of laws, ceremonial laws, or laws regarding what kind of foods one can eat, what cannot eat. And, and the Old Testament had much of these dietary laws. They were given by God to teach Israel the difference between what it means to be clean and unclean. It was meant to be an object lesson to show them of how... <clears throat> when sin affects their lives, how they need to seek to be cleansed from their sin and that their cleansing must come from God. That's why they always had to cleanse. When they were, had to, were unclean, they had to sacrifice an animal. An animal had to die whenever there was a cleansing for sin, or at least a symbolic cleansing for sin. And, there were, and so in this New Testament church, some of these Jewish background believers continued to teach this emphasis on these dietary laws. And they continued to emphasize that if you eat this kind of food, then this pure food, this clean food, then you'll be clean. And if, but if you eat this unclean food, this forbidden food, then you're going to actually be unclean. You're going to be defiled. You're going to be sinful. And that's not good. And so they were advocating this kind of, this kind of, uh, these kind of teachings. And Paul addresses it here. But as he addresses it, he reveals the real nature of these false teachers. First of all, in verse 15, he reveals, he implies the real nature. The real nature is implied. Number one, and he, he does so, as, as he does so, let's, let's, let's see how he implies the real nature of the false teachers. First of all, number one, he addresses here in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. 
So what he addresses here is that to this spiritually pure, all food is pure. Now, the word pure is used twice, but in each case, it's used a little differently. It has a slightly different meaning, a different nuance. In the numeric Hosanna, to the, the word to the pure, that first pure, refers to those who are spiritually pure, those who are, who are morally, who are, who, are, who are cleansed of their sin in Christ. They've been washed clean by faith in the death of Christ. And that's why they're pure. See, the word pure emphasizes that once we were impure. How were we impure? We're all impure. We're all defiled. We're all dirty because of sin, because of our sin nature. Because of our fallen nature, we are all, if you will, dirty, stained before God. Our sins are like scarlet on us, as the Bible says. It's like red that we can't wash off. Our sin is like filthy rags that we wear. There's a, there's a stain. There's, it, you can't get rid of it. This is, this is, we're impure before the Lord. See, and the reality is that all of us have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. And before God, all of us, no one is righteous. No one is good. Every one of us are guilty and deserving of God's punishment, God's wrath. His just punishment, just like every criminal in this world, is deserving of the just punishment and penalty as well. But when God in his mercy sent his son, he sent him to save us from our sins by dying on our place on the cross. And whoever puts their trust in him has their sins forgiven, really because Christ's death paid the penalty of our sins. And so when we believe in Christ, our sins, our dirty, our, our stains, scarlet stains, our filthy rags are washed clean. We're made white as snow. We're given garments of white. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see us as dirty, sinful people. He says us as clean, pure people. And that's what Paul means when he says to the pure to this, those who are believers, those who have, been, who have put their, repented of their sin and put their faith in Christ, those who have been washed clean by the death of Christ on the cross. To the pure, all things are pure. Now, this doesn't mean many people use this verse out of context and they say, well, basically, because I'm saved, I can do anything. I can even do sinful things and it's pure. I can go, you know, I can go, uh, I don't want to give you guys ideas, but I can do some sinful things and it's still Okay. No, the context here is particularly about ceremonial law, dietary laws. It's about foods. First Timothy, uh, the, the cross from First Timothy 4 is going to, we'll mention that specifically. It's about the foods that we eat, what's clean and what's unclean. And they were thinking that if you eat certain foods, it makes you clean. And if you eat un- dirty foods or unclean foods, then it makes you impure. But in Christ... All foods are pure. That's what Jesus taught. The second word pure refers to the ceremonial pure. Unlike the Old Testament dietary laws in Christ, there is no food that one can eat that will defile a man. We don't have to worry about buying kosher foods at the grocery store anymore. Well, we never did to unless you were Jewish, but you know, we didn't have to worry about that. But this, this truth comes from Jesus' teachings in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verse 14 to 23. There he taught that nothing outside the man, and that means food, can enter the man and make you unclean. There's nothing you can eat. You can eat lobster, you can eat pig, pork. Oh, I love my barbecue pork. I mean, and just, you can eat the unclean stuff, and it's not going to make you a sinner. The problem is you're already a sinner. Jesus taught very clearly in Mark that it's what's inside that defiles you. It's our sinful hearts. It's our, sinful, it's our evil thoughts, our evil desires. And what then comes out of that, that's what defiles a man. It's the deeds that come out of our sinful heart. You see, as sinners in nature, we inevitably do commit sinful deeds, all of us. And it starts very young in rebellion. That's what the second part of verse 15 teaches then, Right? That not only to the, spiritually pure, to the spiritually pure, all food is pure, but to the spiritually defiled, no food is going to make you pure. 
No food is going to make you pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving. So here he makes it clear that if you're defiled, if you're impure, that means you're unbelieving. You haven't believed in Jesus Christ yet. Nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. You can eat all the clean, kosher foods in the world. You can observe all the dietary laws like these false teachers were advocating in the world, and it will make you no more pure before God. It will, make your, it will not make your sinful mind any cleaner, your sinful conscience any cleaner. In fact, it may harden that heart because you think you're being pure by observing those food, by eating certain foods, observing these external these external, uh, uh, these external rules. And this is really an evidence. It's not just, it's not just foods. There's probably a, a requirement, Jewish requirements of, of circumcision that was being made upon people. There's probably calls for observing the religious holidays, the three annual feasts. There are probably other calls that were external. But they say they were all external ritualism or religious externalism. And the fact is, that's just not something that's just foreign to their day. It happens in our days all the time. It's something that I'm consciously, very consciously aware of as a parent. Many of you are young parents out there, your teachers, you, I hope you're aware of this too. Because right now, when your children are young, we're just teaching them outward external practices of the Christian faith, right? I know Cindy and I, we're trying to teach our, our daughter the importance of, of going to church to worship God. Go to church. We're teaching her how to pray, to pray, you know, to say, you know, words, talk to God. We're teaching her how to read the Bible. Well, we read the Bible. She doesn't read yet, but, you know, we want to read the Bible to her. And these are things are, you know, we would say are not are good things. In fact, they're things that are instructed of to us in the scriptures. But I never want our daughter to think that by observing those things, by going to church, reading her Bible and praying, that that makes her pure before the Lord, right? Wouldn't that be a mistake, brothers and sisters? It would be. It would be a serious, severe mistake. See, what makes, what will make any, our daughters and your children, your sons, pure before the Lord is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's Christ alone. It's his death on the cross in place of us. And it's the call for us to, for our job as parents is to eventually teach our child that she's a sinner in need of forgiveness, of cleansing, and that Jesus died on the cross to cleanse her from that sin. That if she would put her trust and faith in Jesus, his death for her, then she can have her sins forgiven. We want to teach that. And then the, going to the, the attending church, the praying, the reading the Bible, that will fall into place. And that will have the sanctifying effect for those who are believers in Christ. doesn't mean we're not going to teach her those things. We're gonna, we want to teach her. We want to teach her the the. the what it's like to uh, the practice of the Christian life as we're hopefully teaching her the truth, the truth of the Christian life, the heart of the gospel. We don't, we want to guard against religious externalism, brothers and sisters. Only repentance from sin and faith in Christ makes you pure. And so with this verse then, Paul hints at the real possibility that these false teachers are actually false Christians as well. They're actually unbelieving because they hold to a false gospel. It's not a mistake. They're doing it maliciously for sordid gain even. And what, but what he hints at in verse 15, he makes explicit in verse 16, the real nature stated. He says in verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. The false teachers, they, they claimed to know God, right? They were, these were professing Christians. These were people that, you know, the fellow people on Crete, they knew. This was, this was their uncles and aunts. These were their fellow brothers and sisters in the, the, the Lord that they had been worshiping with. These are people that we, they knew in the church. They're people that are sitting in the room with us. These are not external people. These people profess to know God, and we would have thought they knew God too. But it's by their deeds they deny him. 
See, it's not just their doctrine, it's their deeds that deny God. Because when you hold to unsound, unhealthy, false doctrine, it inevitably leads to false and, to false and ungodly deeds. Because if you justify your purity, if you say your purity is all about because I you know, do this, do this, do this, right? Then I'm not going to worry about trying to be a godly person. Because I've already covered it. I, I don't eat this food and I, and I, I'm, I'm this, and I go to this, this uh, temple, this church. Therefore, I'm good with God. I don't have to be nice, be loving to people. I don't have to love the stranger. I don't have to love my enemy. I don't have to be gracious and kind. That's, that's, that's optional. All things are pure to those who are pure. You know, in that kind of false sense. These false, these false teachers were living hypocritical lives. But instead of actually being pure, they were actually detestable in God's eyes. The sad truth is that they were detestable. They were an abomination before God because they named and claimed to follow God, but by their teaching and then by their life, they were denying God. And we all, we all fear that if, as believers, right? None of us here, I hope, want by our lives to deny God. We don't want our lives to deny him. Sometimes we do things and we're like, oh man, that was pretty shameful of me to have done that. I shouldn't have done that. That was, that, that was not a good testimony of, of Christ in me. But hopefully the pattern of our lives is that we are being good examples of those who are believers in Christ. Now it's not the good deeds that save us. It's because we're saved that we will then do good deeds. These false teachers were disobedient to God. They weren't following God's commands. And worse, they made, and because of that, they were worthless for any good deed. And that's the kind of the whole theme, that's the theme of Titus, that our sound doctrine must lead to good deeds, to right conduct. The reality of ungodly teachers being unbelieving teachers is why we need godly elders. It's really hard to tell you the truth. How do you know when someone's teaching a false doctrine that, you know, <clears throat> that they are either a backslidden Christian that just simply needs a reproof, or they're actually a false teacher? They're false Christians. They're actually a wolf in sheep's clothing that needs our evangelism and perhaps even chasing off. It takes much wisdom much dependence and trust in the Lord. It takes a discernment that requires often, at least in this church, it requires a plurality of godly elders. It's not going to be decided by one, one man. It takes discernment, and we need such men. Paul's words uh, call for such men. What's more, as just kind of last app, an application, Paul's words here would have been a warning to the Cretan believers that they too must examine their lives. What kind of deeds do they see produced in their life? as a result of their doctrine. What do the deeds in your life say about the, your knowledge of God? What do your words say? What do your actions say? What does your, your social media sites say about you? you know, what do your postings say about you? They say that you are one who knows God. Or if we look at it, your life, listen to your words, see what you watch or do or drink or, or consume or, or post, would it be a denial of God? Now, if you're not sure what this should look like, Paul's going to give us many examples of this actually in chapter two. He's gonna describe for us how various groups and the people in the church should live in light of the sound doctrine of the gospel that they hold to. And we'll get that in the next several weeks. Well, just want to conclude. We've learned a lot about false teachers today. We learned about the rebellion. We learned just about the, the reproof that's called for them. We learned about the real nature of some of some false teachers. And I've tried to emphasize that false teachers are not just people way out there. False teachers can be in here. See, in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it, right? So he's saying that basically death cannot harm the church. Death can, people, and that is the threat of death cannot harm the church. And sometimes we're, the church, we're worried about people harming us, harming the church. We tend, we tend to be worried sometimes, well, 
I shouldn't say we, but I worry about maybe people outside the church harming us. I worry about, you know, oh, maybe the government's going to do something that's going to harm us. Maybe our, the laws of land are going to do something that's harming us. But the reality is there's nothing there, that the primary danger to the church is not from outside the church. It's not from, it's not death. It's not the world. It's not the government. Believe you me, no matter what you think about our president, good or bad, okay, he cannot do any more danger to this church than you can. You are more dangerous to this church than, our, than the president who sits in the office or, a pres- or the mayor of our city or the governor of our state or the person who leads sits in some office that's out there because they're outside the church. The greatest danger, the greatest threat to the church are the false teachers from within. You and I can possibly become false teachers. We must be on guard, therefore, for ourselves. That we will not be, we will careful, be careful that we will not allow ourselves to get caught up with pet doctrines. Sometimes we do that. I have, we all got doctrines that we like, okay? We all do. Sometimes we get carried away with a pet doctrine, and that becomes something that we'll just, just keep telling everybody about it. And we'll start basically dividing over it, dividing over some pet doctrine when that is not essential to the gospel. We must guard ourselves from our own heart of rebellion. We must guard ourselves from rebellion that is oftentimes manifest in our lives, sometimes oftentimes manifest with regard to authority in the church as well, with our leaders. We must guard from also as a church tolerate, tolerating false doctrine in the church. We must not tolerate gospel destroying truths among ourselves. We must be courageous severely reprove those who would teach contrary to the gospel. Even if they are our aunties and uncles, our loved ones, the people who we know in this church, longtime members even. And then lastly, we must guard the gospel that leads to godliness. Never settle for a purity or, or salvation from ritual externalism from outward deeds. Don't, don't settle, don't be settled like, well, because I did this, did this, did this, therefore uh, I'm good with God. We must always remind ourselves of the gospel. That's because of the word of life, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And I have placed my faith in him and turned from my sin, turned to him and trust in him. That is the only gospel that saves. That's what saves me. That's what saves you. And that's what saves anybody who walks through these doors. Brothers and sisters, let's keep preaching this gospel. Let's guard this gospel. For this is the kind of gospel that leads to godliness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and your truth. And we pray that you would cause us to be mindful and watchful for false doctrines, false teachers, ungodly teachers, Lord, even not just outside of the church, but especially inside the church. Lord, help us to, help us to, <clears throat> to be people who watch out for the potential of being false, doctor, false teachers in ourselves. And Lord, I pray that first and foremost for myself, Lord, as the primary teacher in this church. Lord, that you would guard me from ever falling into heresy or error, or camping on pet doctrines that need not to be thinking that I, I know better than all the other elders in this church. Lord, guard, the, guard all our teachers in this church, our fellow elders, our, our Sunday school teachers, our fellowship group counselors, our children's teachers, and the different, the, our disciplers in this church all throughout our various ministries. Guard us from a, any attitude of rebellion. Part of, help us to guard also from tolerating error, error that affects the gospel. Yet, Lord, help us to be loving, not to seek the destruction of those who teach error, but to the restoration of those who teach error. And Lord, help us to always be a church that guards the gospel, that proclaims it clearly, teaches it clearly, and lives it out. Help us to reflect the love of God, the, the love, the grace, and kindness of God our Savior.
Help us to reflect him in every way through our speech and through our deeds, in our personal lives and in our public lives, in our internet lives even. Lord, we ask that you would cause us to be a church that holds fast to the sound doctrine that leads to godliness. We pray that you would take your word now, cause it to go forth. And Father, if there's anyone here who does not yet know Jesus Christ, have not come to know the, the purity, the cleansing that comes from forgiveness that is offered by him on the cross, Lord, I pray that you would help bring them to a place where they recognize their need for a savior, that Jesus died for them, that they would put their trust in him and accept him, receive him today into their lives to follow after Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to build your church here as Christ promised. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.